stuck on some wires there this morning. This morning, we are going to start to look at what is one of my favorite books of Scripture, and that is the Gospel of John. Uh, John is a very logical book to start to dig into the week after Easter. Uh, and if you've spent any time in the Gospels, you know, we'll, we'll nerd out a little bit this morning, so some of you theological nerds can have a little more fun, perhaps. But there's, there's four Gospels. If you didn't know that, you might be new here. Uh, that's okay, but you learn today. There's four Gospels, and three of them are very similar. So similar, in fact, that we call them the synoptic Gospels. They are, they are very similar in nature in how they're written. They, they do have their own distinct things, which is why we don't just have one of them. It's not like you can read Matthew and then just be done. But the, but the book of John is kind of this separate thing. It stands out in a lot of ways. It's its own unique gospel. When I was in, in college, in undergrad, and later in seminary, I, I became a little obsessed with the book of John and kind of took every class I could get my hands on because I was intrigued by this idea that all these people that were eyewitnesses to the work and ministry and life and death and resurrection of Jesus would have these accounts that they would write down, but that John would be, he was always this different guy, this odd one out in some way. He was called the disciple that Jesus loved. That doesn't mean he didn't love the others, but it's the special designation that he gets. And so there's some things in the Gospel of John that if you read it, will look remarkably different. For one, if you look at the first three Gospels, they all start with some level of the birth of Christ, right? They go through either the genealogy or they go through a very detailed story of the birth. They, maybe they talk about John the Baptist right before we get to Jesus. But they start with the, the earthly birth of Christ into humanity. John starts very different. John starts with the words, in the beginning. And when he says in the beginning, he's not going back to the birth of Christ in human form but he's echoing the words of Genesis. He says, in the very beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word there is Jesus. And so John has, from the very outset, a different approach and different goals in what he's trying to accomplish in his gospel. The first 18 verses of the book of John are perhaps some of the most beautiful words of Scripture if you're somebody who likes the Psalms and likes something a little more flowery and poetic, it is just a magnificent piece of reading. N.T. Wright actually calls it an overture to the opera of the book of John. It's this beautiful intro that sets out exactly what he's going to do. John has this way of using different contrasting imagery all through his gospel. So you'll see him talk a lot about like darkness versus light or belief versus unbelief and those kinds of things. And John has a special word for the miracles of Jesus, too, that gives us a really big hint as to what the book is about. If you look in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see the word miracles. If you look in, the John, in John, you won't see miracles. You'll see the word signs. Because for John, everything that Jesus does is miraculous, is meant to point to something. It is a sign of something. And so we have a lot of these different signs that show up. The book of John, 21 chapters, the first 12 are called the book of signs. It's just these things of, here's what Jesus does. And the pattern is always the same. He does a sign, and then there's some kind of interaction with him and a person where he explains, or there's, there's something that you learn that tells you about what the deal with that sign is. 
And so the first 12 chapters are devoted to that. 13 through 21 are, is called the Book of Glory. And here's where John gets really unique. John spends almost half his entire gospel focusing on just the last week of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. The Passion Week, as we say. Almost half the book is just devoted to this one week. Imagine a college class on that, where for the first semester you're just flying through and all of a sudden it's like a verse a week. It's like, <laughs> just it's such a different pace. Right? John uses a whole lot less parables. Maybe you've read through some of the Gospels and you see all, just, there's this list of parables over and over and over and over again. John really doesn't do parables. What John does is interaction stories. So you'll see something like the woman at the well or the adulterous woman or the story of him meeting at night with Nicodemus. There's this host of one-on-one -on -one interactions where we get to see Jesus have a conversation with someone else and learn about what he's like and what it means to be followers of him in the midst of this. And so it is this very different book. John is also the only one that records a promise of the coming Holy Spirit. Both in John 14, 27, and then in John 16, 33, we get this promise of the Holy Spirit. We don't see that in other places, really. There's illusions, but it's not this blatant promise. And we'll talk about that promise a little bit more today. John focuses relentlessly on who Jesus is. The most famous things in the book are these seven I am statements. They're kind of the crux of each of the sections. And here's, here they are, in case you were wondering. I don't know if I can... There we go. The I am statements of John. I won't go through all of them, but every story kind of leads up to this thing where he, he says, I am this. These are statements Jesus makes about himself. And so it goes all the way from I am the bread to I am the true vine. And then in John 14, right as he's getting ready to promise the spirit, I am the way and the truth and the life. There are these exclusive statements that he makes about himself. Now, why do we talk about all of this? Understanding John's motivation and where he's coming from is really important as we dig into our passage for today. This morning, we're going to look at some of the post-resurrection accounts of John. Right? Jesus was strung up on the cross. He died. They put him in the grave. Friday night came and went. Saturday came and went. We are now getting into Sunday morning, and there's great sorrow in the world. Right? We come to Palm Sunday, and we come on Maundy Thursday, and we celebrate, and it's gloomy, and the lights go dim, but we know what's coming. We can get over Thursday night sitting in the sanctuary with red lights and darkness and communion and leaving quietly, because we know that three days later, we're going to come here, and we're going to have a party. The disciples had no idea. They thought that defeat had occurred, that it was the end. And so we get to see in John's gospel, what happens when Jesus rises and how he shows himself to the people. If you're watching Disney movies, this is the epilogue. This is the result of the great thing that happened. The battle is over. Well, what's the beauty that we get to experience as a result of the victory that is won? <clears throat> See, it's not enough to just say Jesus rose, but what happens as a result of it? People out there probably don't really care that Jesus rose. But I tell you one thing, they care about the result of that because Jesus, in his death and resurrection, accomplished something for us. Right? What is that something? 
We get to see what they are experiencing. And I want to do something a little different. I actually am going to start with the last two verses of our passage today before we get into it. Because it's kind of neat. John wraps this up. This should be the last verses of the whole book, but it's not. But he wraps it up in a neat package. And John does something most writers of the Old and New Testament don't do. They just tell you at the end what the whole point of their book is. Here's what he says. Now, <clears throat> now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, a.k.a. Jesus did more than we read about. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Why are we reading any of this stuff? Why did John go through the trouble of writing these words down and making them so eloquent and organizing them the way they did? Because his goal was that someday we would read his words, and as a result, we would believe that Jesus is Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that we might have life in his name through belief in him. It's the whole point. Today we're looking at two different accounts of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. We'll look at them in, in one unit, but we'll treat them separately. So let's, let's read together. This is John 20, verses 19 through 31. On the evening of that day, the first of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad, and they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, we're going to dig a lot into him today, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails... And unless I place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them this time. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Sounds familiar? Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. And put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's the word of the Lord. First time in the upper room. We're told that the disciples were gathering together and that the door was locked. They were in fear. See, the disciples knew that people associated them with Jesus and they had just seen this excruciating crucifixion take place and they probably had to be imagining, I, we've got to be next. 
It's just a matter of time until the authorities put two and two together and they start to come for us. And so they're gathering on Sunday in fear. Fear of their lives, fear of their families, livelihoods, and everything that comes with it. Imagine, as many in the world do, gathering here every morning in fear of what might come through the door. They're terrified. And in the midst of it, Jesus shows up, which probably terrified them more because he's supposed to be dead. And he says, peace be with you, which serves really two purposes. Number one, it's a pretty standard greeting. We, we hear that that's the way that we, they just spoke at the time. So if I'm going to come in a room and say, hey, how you doing? Back then they would look at you and say, peace be with you. So it's not an uncommon thing for people to say, but in Jesus' case, it goes beyond just the common Jewish greeting but it's actually a fulfillment of promise. If we look back to the two verses in 1427 and 1633 where the Spirit is promised, we see that along that, not just the Spirit is promised, but peace is promised as well. The Lord tells them that when all this is done, when, I have, when my plan is complete, when I have done what the Father has asked me to do, when I come back, I, I will bring you, I will give you my... And so when he comes and he stands before them, he's not just saying, hey. He's saying, peace be with you, in the sense of the peace actually is with you. It's here now. It's not just an empty greeting, right? We do that when you come in the door. How you doing? Do we really want to know? <laughs> we know what empty greetings are, right? Imagine if you were the greeter and people, you said, every time you said, how are you doing? People gave you a 10-minute recount of how they were actually doing. Probably wouldn't volunteer to be a greeter anymore, would you? <laughs> yeah, no. Jesus here has meaning packed in. He's saying, listen, I am here. I am back. I've accomplished what I mean to accomplish. My peace is now here, and it is for you to receive. You can have peace. You can breathe easy now. I'm with you. It's finished. It's over. It's finished. Have peace. And then he promises them, he has two things. Number one, he tells them that as I have done for the Father, as the Father sent me, now I'm sending you. And then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. The word for breathe that is used here in Greek is the same word in the Greek version of the Old Testament when God breathes life into Adam. It's a literal breathing of new life. And as the Spirit comes there's arguments to be made. We talk about Pentecost when the Spirit comes. There's some really valid arguments about whether the, the disciples received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost or whether they received the Holy Spirit right here. I would answer, if you want to say, which one is it? I would just say yes. <laughs> I'm not sure we can 100% know, but I can tell you this isn't just a foreshadowing. He's not saying, receive the Spirit later. What a weird picture that would be for him to be in the room and say, peace be with you, and then breathe on them and go, that's the Holy Spirit that you get to have in a couple weeks. <laughs> no. He gives them the Spirit. And then he contrasts his task and nature with theirs. And he says, just as the Father has sent me, 
so I send you. The parallel of what the commands in this passage to us are versus what the Father sent Jesus to do are remarkably similar. Just as with Jesus, or just as with us here, Jesus also receives the Holy Spirit. When Jesus is baptized, the the heavens open and and the Lord's Spirit descends on Jesus. And so as we see way back in the beginning of his ministry, God calls Jesus to the ministry and the task at hand. And then he gives him the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord rests upon him to be able to give him and to equip him and to encourage him and to empower him to carry out his work. Jesus doesn't just go through his three years of ministry life just on his own with no... that The Spirit of the Lord is with him. And I know it's weird because he has the Spirit of God, but he is God, right? We don't understand how all that works. But it's the same with us. Jesus says, now you are to go. You're to go into the world and you're to, just like I did, proclaim that the Lord has come. That's your role. That's your task. And by the way, here's the spirit to do that work because you need him. (laughs) He calls us and then he equips us. And the people's response is that they believe and they call him Lord. With the exception of Thomas, What's the name that we usually associate with Thomas? Everybody say it out loud. Yeah, Doubting Thomas. The guy, the poor guy gets a bad rep. It's like if your name is Karen in today's world. You know, like, there's like the meme of like everybody, every office has a Karen. I know some Karens. They're wonderful people. I feel so bad for them. Because their name now means something that like doesn't, (laughs) it's this negative connotation. Doubting Thomas gets a really bad rep. And it's entirely undeserved. This is one of the passages that we probably screw up more than others. And it's sad because I actually think that it causes a real detriment to our faith and our growth as followers of Christ that we get this wrong. See, Thomas wasn't there. And so when he returns, Jesus has already left. And the disciples say, hey, this crazy thing happened. And he's like, "Eh, I don't know if I buy that. That sounds pretty loony. Now, notice he doesn't just say, no. He says, listen, uh, unless I see the hands and and his sides and get to put my hands on them, I don't know that I can believe that. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, that's a pretty fair assessment. If you were one of the the disciples, if you were the 11 remaining ones, minus Judas, and and Thomas wasn't there and he came and made these claims, I think you would have to say, that's fair. I think if we wouldn't have seen Jesus ourselves, we probably would have thought people were crazy too. And so what what we seemingly see in this passage is Jesus rebuking Thomas, right? He comes again, and the story happens the same way as the passage before. The similarities are remarkable. It's literally a week to the day later. It's again on Sunday morning, one week later. Again he comes, again he says, peace be with you. And then he doesn't even wait for Thomas to speak. He just says, hey, Thomas, um, here's the hands and the side. Come here, look, look. Go ahead and look. And it's not an angry look. He just tells him, "Look, look at what you need to see. It's right here. And then Thomas believes and he says, calls him Lord. The Lord then has this phrase, and this is the one we screw up. We think this is a rebuke of him. He says, 
you saw and believed. Blessed are those who don't see and still believe. And he's talking about us and everybody that comes after the disciples. Because everybody that you would call a Christian after this point, when Jesus ascends, that hasn't witnessed it themselves, every one of these people are people that are going to believe by hearing and not by sight. Have you seen Jesus standing in your room with the wounds? No. You believe because of sight. And so Jesus just says, hey, it's great that you saw and believed. Those who don't get that opportunity going forward, blessed are they that they would believe based on the things that you have said and that the people you've said it to have said to them and to them and to them and on. It's not a rebuke. If Jesus wanted to rebuke Thomas, he would have showed up and said, how dare you not believe me until you see the wounds? No, he just shows them. He says, whatever you need. You need to see them, here they are. Do you believe now? Great. Man, blessed are the people who are going to hear your words and then buy into this and follow me. Right? So what are the things we, we get from all of this? There's really two big ones. Number one, and this might be stating the obvious, I hope it is, Christianity, our faith, is a faith that is central in, in every way to historical, actual, physical events. Being a Christian is not some mystic or, or Gnosticism type of thought thing. It's not a philosophy of religion that gets to stand next to all the other philosophies of religion that are in the world today. No, it, it is unique in that it is fully based on historical events. The resurrection is not a metaphor for something. It happened. Jesus was an actual in-flesh person, fully human, fully divine. He really did get arrested. He really did get tortured. He really did get killed on a cross. And he really did fully rise again. If you're saying, Vince, boo, yeah, of course. But guess what? This is questioned today heavily. The real physical resurrection is under so much attack. There's all kinds of theories as to, well, it didn't, he didn't really rise. There's like the swoon theory where they might have you know, seen an image of him or you know, maybe they hallucinated that they saw Jesus again and they just made it up because it sounded like a cool story and they wanted to start a religion and, and you know, be cool. No. These theories are real, so you laugh. But even in certain churches, there are denials. There are theological debates about the real historical nature of the resurrection. And I got to tell you, if the resurrection didn't really physically, historically happen, then there's no point to us being here. You can take your tithing dollars elsewhere and go home. There's no point. We could all be doing better things with our time. Everything, everything hinges on the fact that all of it actually happened. Really, genuinely happened. I think one of the problems that we have in the culture today, if we look at, you know, oh, the world's crazy. All kinds of weird beliefs and, and Christianity is under attack and, you know, sexual ethic is so not what it used to be. All these things. If you really think about it, most of the issues, the cultural hot-button topics of the day, are a result of some kind of denial of reality. Certainly in the sexuality realm, right? We live in a world where people just deny what actually is real. I get to decide who I want to be. No. 
And I don't want to get on a tangent with this, but I just, if you observe the culture in every way, we, we do the same thing with money. How many do we know that, well, I, don't ha I only have this much money, but I want to live as if I have this much money? Credit cards? <laughs> right? we, we want to live outside of reality. And our faith is one that is based on what is real. It is based on a real God who created a real earth. He created it in a certain way with a certain purpose and a certain set of rules. And he created it to function in a certain way. And then he sent his real son into the real world to live a real life and die a real death and rise a real resurrection and take on our very real sins so that we could deal with the real separation between us and God. All those things are real historical things and it's really important that we understand that because we come in here and we don't just have some like swoon belief that we think is probably the way that it is. There's probably a God up there in the cosmos just swirling around. Maybe he's just in my thoughts. No, it's real, physical, real stuff. All of it is. That's what our faith is based on. That's what it hinges on. We have to defeat any kind of attempt to, to discuss the, the potential that some of this stuff might not have really happened. And so John writes these accounts so that you can actually see real people interacting with a real risen Christ. There's not just a, oh, he rose. He has all these eyewitness accounts, right? We didn't read them all, and we're going to get into some more next week when Paul preaches. But before this, we have the account of Mary at the tomb, and then we have John and Peter running to the tomb, and they see that it's empty, and they believe before they even see Jesus. They just see the empty tomb and go, oh, I believe. Right? We have all of these accounts. We have the restoration of Peter that we'll talk about in, the, in a week or two. He shows himself to so many people, and John is sure to point that out because he wants us to understand, listen, this is something that really went down. And here's the thing with history. We have to reckon it. We can't ignore it. So many people try to deny history. I have to hear one more story of the denial of the Holocaust. Oh, my gosh. Why do we want to deny the Holocaust? Because we don't want to deal with the fact that we as humanity could have been so savage. But we need to. Why do we want to deny the resurrection? Because, well, if it didn't happen, then there's a whole lot of stuff that comes along with being a follower of Christ. We don't really have to be sent the way that Jesus was sent. But guess what? The resurrection happened. And so we have to reckon with that. One way or another, you've got to deal with that fact. You can either say, I don't care, or you can get involved and you can say, I believe. And you can commit your life to Christ and you can walk with him. But you've got to make a decision because Jesus rose. Do with that what you want to do. Second thing is this. How we as individuals come to believe Christ can vary wildly. I had some friends um, in my college years who spent a whole lot of time rejecting Christ. Um, and it was kind of always the same story. It was people that have grown up in the church not that growing up in the church is bad. I hope that my son grows up in the church and knows Jesus his whole life and has the most boring testimony of all time. That's my prayer. Right? But they grew up in the church. They, they go through the Sundays. They go through the Bible classes. They can tell you how many books are in the Bible. They can recite them in order. They've done the Sunday school classes and the, you know, all, that, all that good stuff. And they get to college and people start to question some very harsh things about their faith. They start to dig into some deeper topics and they start to do kind of the thing that Satan did in the garden, right? Has God really said that? Well, if God loved, he wouldn't do this. 
or he wouldn't condemn this behavior. Right? Love is love. Like, they get challenged in all these ways. And I saw so many people throw away their faith that they've had their whole life. I'm the opposite. I was rebellious against the faith until the very end of high school. Uh, I thought it was hogwash. You've, many of you have heard at least parts of my testimony. Um, it wasn't until my, my junior year of high school that I, I looked at it and, and, and kind of ran out of debates. I was debating scripture every place I could. I was like, can't be true because this, right? And then someone would give me an answer. I was like, I'm doubting that this could be possibly real. Well, actually, let's look at it. And then over time, over time, the Lord broke me down and the spirit wore on me until I had no more questions or excuses left. So I was the opposite. I was weak in my faith until I got close to college, as opposed to people who had been strong in their faith their whole lives until they got there. Here's why I think a lot of those weaknesses occur. Why statistically do most students abandon their faith when they go to college and beyond? It's because they never doubted or questioned. If we're honest with ourselves, we're not sure that we think it's appropriate to doubt your faith. Certainly you can't do that out loud. Certainly not here with other Christians that might hear you and judge you because you question something that scripture says or you're not sure about this thing that God said we should be doing or you're not sure about this piece of theology or your church says something about the way the world's supposed to work that you don't agree with and so you either kind of just let it go or you get mad at it and you leave. Right? We are taught not to question our faith. But Thomas's account is actually a whole different idea than that. Thomas doesn't tell us that we can't question our faith. He encourages us that we should do so. Thomas doesn't buy it. He says, unless I see, I can't believe. And so Jesus says, well, come see then. Here's the hands. You want to touch them? By the way, we never find out if he actually touched them or not. Maybe you've never heard this said from a pulpit, but you need to. It is 100% okay to have doubts and questions in your faith in Jesus Christ. It is 100% okay to question things that scripture says. It is 100% okay to question things that you've heard myself or any other pastor speak from the pulpit. Well, the pulpit, the virtual pulpit. This remote is the pulpit. It's okay. Maybe you've never heard that before. Maybe that's really freeing to you. Maybe right now you're going, oh my gosh, I didn't know I could do that. Here's my dream. Absolute dream. Let me just digress a little bit. My dream is that in the next two months, I'd get nothing done during the work week that I need to get done. Because I'm so busy with people coming in here during the week that say, I don't know what I think about this. Can we talk? And I've had so much coffee with people that I'm caffeinated that I can't go to sleep at night. So that's then when I'm going to do all the work that I was supposed to do during the week. That's my dream. That's my idea of a wonderful dream work week. <laughs> Where all my life is sucked up with people asking me questions about faith that they're wondering about because they have doubts. Here's the difference between good doubt and bad doubt. Bad doubt says, I don't know if I buy this. I'm just going to stay quiet. I'm going to wrestle with that doubt myself. Eh, maybe I'll just, maybe this Jesus thing isn't for me. Because I don't seem to be believing it as strongly as the person next to me in the pew, in the chairs. Good doubt. I don't know if I buy this. I need to seek answers. In every way I possibly can. 
I need to go talk to my pastor or somebody on staff or talk to that family member that I know has a long seasoned track record of faith or talk to that person in church that I just admire for whatever reason and feels seems like they just know things that I don't know. I want to pursue my doubts. And I want to get answers. Every person in scripture who wrestled with the Lord about things ended up being blessed by it. God ain't afraid of your questions. <laughs> He's not. He welcomes them. I want to encourage you, if you have never wrestled with the things that cause you to wonder, wrestle with them. In about a week or two, they're starting a new class. It's one of our small group Bible studies. And uh, it was originally Karen, Karen Mascola is going to lead it. It's called The Reason for God. It's, it's a whole, whole kind of seven weeks on the, the hard questions in the world that seem to make us wonder if God is real and if all the things he says are true. And you sit down and you work through those questions. Say, Here it is. A loving God would never let evil things happen. Let's talk about it. Would he? Wouldn't he? Would it be fair if he did? Those are hard questions. But don't sit at home and wonder. Come and wrestle with them. As a matter of fact, I'm not 100% sure about the time it, but Karen's group is a women's Bible study group. I'm going to run a men's version of it. So that if you're not a woman, <laughs> you can come. We can ask the same questions. I think it's important. We ought to wrestle together. So tomorrow when you get the FYI or the email that goes out, look for that. We'll, we'll put a time on there and we'll, we'll meet and we'll gather and we'll talk about these things. If you have questions, if you've always wondered, don't be afraid. Ask them. <laughs> Come and be a part of the growth of the church body together. That's why we're here. My dream, oh my gosh, my absolute dream is that we would end up being known as the church where people can come who have questions. For the people on the street who wonder what this building is all about, maybe they've heard something about God, they need God in their lives, but they have no idea what that means. They think, I don't, I don't know if I believe any of that. That we would be known as a place where they say, you know what, that's still present. I, I heard I can come there and just ask some questions and no one will judge me and they'll answer them. And I can learn and I can wrestle with doubts. That still present is a place where I could probably sit in the church as an unbeliever for a whole year and just wrestle. Wouldn't that be great? We're always wondering, what should we be known for? The place that loves, the place that serves, all these things. Maybe we're known as the place where you can come and you can wrestle and it's okay. We have people that are willing to sit with you and have lunch with you and have coffee with you and come to your house and you to theirs. You can come see what a Christian family looks like, what a Christian marriage looks like. Man, I'd love to be known as that place. John's gospel invites us to come and ask, do we believe? The whole book is a case study. He's building this legal case that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is who he says he is. So I want to invite you to ask yourself, who do you say he is? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you give us your word that allows us to dig in to see who you are. We thank you for the Apostle John 
witnessed your glory and your majesty and did his best to recount it so that we would read the stories of what you did and come to know you and come to believe and come to walk with you. God, I pray for for anyone in this room who this morning is wondering about these things. I pray that you would provide clarity, that you would provide courage to ask, that you would put people in those people's lives to answer questions, to wrestle together, to wonder, to seek, and to find. Be with us this morning as we continue in worship and praise to you. Let us stand in awe of your resurrection and be with us as we go out. And Father, let this be known as a place where you dwell and people can come and find you. We love you and praise you. And all people said,